Please open to 1 Corinthians 1. Our text is 1 Corinthians 1, 10 to 17 today. And while you're opening to that passage, just a quick word about an announcement Josh made, the, the STM to Ireland. We know it's short notice. Hey, in a month, do you want to go to Ireland? We know it's short notice. Um, uh, this church, Emmanuel Baptist in Ireland, where, where some of you have been bump stripped from our church, uh, asked for some help. Uh, they have the opportunity to go into public schools and teach the message of the Bible to, to young people, and they have... Um, they need more help that their church can offer. So, uh, in kind of a last-minute fashion, they asked Steve Gallo if maybe there'd be anybody from our church that would go. So, Steve and Charlene are going, and we just wanted to open it up to any of you. Maybe you're able to go. Uh, you're all retired. I mean, you've got, you got, you got oodles of time. So, time and money. Here we go. Yeah. Uh, so, if you're interested in that, talk to Steve Gallo. That'd be great if some of us could go to that. Uh, we're in 1 Corinthians 1, 10 to 17, and as I mentioned last couple of weeks, there's a lot of encouragement in the first part of 1 Corinthians. We're reminded that grace and peace follows those who've been called of God throughout their lives. And then last week we saw that even in an immature and sinful church, those who are united to Christ by faith have grace from God. They've been given the gifts that they need, and they have the faithfulness of God. He will make them to stand guiltless in the day of Christ. So there's much to be thankful for. Now, the rest of the book, the rest of the 16 chapters, there is a lot of rebuke, especially at the beginning, and then some instruction. Evidently, they had asked Paul some questions about living the Christian life, and he answers them. And even in those answers, there are some rebukes as well. And as I reminded you before, you know, it could be really weary to go through a book and to hear all of the rebukes and to take your heart and kind of measure it against 1 Corinthians to see, well, do I do that in any way? That's a good exercise to do. But I told you, you can't forget the stability that you have that was found in verses 4 through 9 of chapter 1. One of the ways God is faithful to you throughout your life and continues to sustain you is by teaching you things that might sting but then you confess those, He forgives, and He continues to change and mold you into the image of Christ. So commands are a sweet gift from our Father. It's really a good dad that says, don't go over there. Come over here. So this is God's kindness to us, okay? Uh, the, the series that starts from, uh, it's about divisions in the local church. They're divided over their leaders, different leaders had been sent by God to teach them all as gifts of God in His providence, they start picking their favorites. And so that's really the theme of what Paul is going to walk us through for the next few chapters. So 1 Corinthians 1, 10 through 17, follow along as I read. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it's been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one I did baptize also the household of Stephanas. Beyond that, I don't know anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent, eloquent wisdom, 
lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. I've entitled the message this morning, My Favorite Preacher is Better Than Your Favorite Preacher. I've <laughs> been uh, obviously studying this book and also the time at which it's set, the location at which it's set, First, Corinthians, or first Century Corinth. And one of the things that happened in first century Corinth, this place, just like other parts of the Greco-Roman world, this place that loved philosophy and philosophers, to be a philosopher and to have followers was like to be the celebrity of the day. And so in that time here in Corinth, again, even beyond, first century philosophers would seek to amass a following of disciples. And it was rather ridiculous, if you will, Disciples would imitate these philosophers in every way. They would imitate the way their favorite philosopher dressed. They would imitate the way he talked, and they would even imitate how they walked. They would change their gait to match how that guy, my teacher, walks. But that wasn't the end of how someone would follow their favorite discipler or their favorite philosopher. Uh, they would follow around sometimes the opponents of their favorite philosopher, and they would ridicule them in public. So if someone was standing on a hill giving his thoughts about life or eternity or whatever it might be, and he slipped up, just maybe pronounced something wrong, followers of the other philosopher yell out and mock him for his error. That's what would happen in that day and age. They would ridicule everybody other than their teacher. They would mock, make fun of, um, slander other philosophers. And the Corinthian church took their cues from the way the world follows their teachers, and they brought that into the church. And as I mentioned in, a couple of weeks ago, you know, we can look out at the world and say, well, we're not like the world. We, we don't believe that you can change your gender. We don't believe that, you know, homosexuality is right. But there are other ways that we can follow what the world does that are more acceptable to us, and this is one of those ways. We can follow our favorite teachers and slander every other teacher that doesn't measure up to where our teacher is. We can do that in the church. The Corinthian believers we're doing this. Now, as I mentioned again last week, they thought of themselves as mature. You'll see later on in chapter 3 that he, I'm sorry, chapter 4, uh, verse 8, he says this, already you have all that you want. Already you've become rich. Th this is sarcasm from Paul. Without us, you've become kings. So, you don't need, you don't need apostles from God to teach you. You've arrived. So the Corinthian church thought of them sure, and in fact, Paul says this is one of the reasons they're actually immature because of this party division that they have with one another. Many of the believers in Corinth had their worth, their spiritual worth, connected to which teacher they followed. They thought that they were more spiritual because they followed Peter, because they followed Paul, because they followed Apollos or because they maybe had disregarded all the teachers God had sent them, and they followed Christ. They don't need any other teachers. So, that there was a pride here. So, there's an immaturity, there's a pride, there's division, and Paul writes right away to correct this. This is the first thing he corrects in a book with a lot of things to correct, and that says something. 
This, as you'll see in a little bit, was one of the signs that they were immature, this party spirit, this party division. And as I said, Christians today can be tempted to let the world's way of following leaders and tearing down opponents affect the way that we follow the leaders that God has given to us. There's a professor at Dallas Seminary, Michael Svigel. Uh, if you're on Twitter, he's a great Twitter follow. Uh, just really insightful, really helpful. Uh, he wrote this about this passage. When I read 1 Corinthians 1.13 and 3.1-4, which is saying the same thing, and then survey the history of the church, I'm tempted to conclude that the church has, as a whole, wallowed in a 2,000-year infancy with no end in sight. We can do better. He's saying the same spirit that was in Corinth is often in the church today. So for our outline this morning, as we go through these verses, uh, here's the main theme, a call to end the party divisions in the church. A call to end the party divisions in the church, and we're going to walk through three points. Here's the first. We're going to see in Paul, we're going to see a strong appeal to end division. That's in the very first verse, verse 10, a strong appeal to end the division. He starts with the word, I appeal to you. You could translate that, I beg of you, I urge you, I'm pleading with you, end this division. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's remember who we're all under here and who we're all in. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree that there be no divisions among you and that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. That word appeal is significant. Paul, Paul wants something badly, and it's for them to stop the divisions. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you agree and there be no divisions among you. Now, you have to be careful when trying to understand the meaning of the Bible that you don't, don't take everything as a wooden literalism. Oh, so we've got to be in a church where everybody agrees with us on everything. That's not what he's saying here. And you see that by the coming language, that all of you agree and there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. What, what, the, the, the problem here is not that they might have smaller issues with one another or smaller disagreements. The problem is they forgot what team they were on. They actually thought that they were on different teams. That's what he means when he says united in the same mind and the same judgment, the same judgment about what we're doing here. You've got to remember what we're all doing here. So there's no room for, well, well, this guy's my favorite, this guy's my favorite, this guy's my favorite. He's saying, we're all here to see the gospel change this world and sanctify us as we wait for Jesus. That's what we're all here for. We're all here for one goal. It's kind of like in, in athletics, uh, some teams have, you know, they all have kind of their logo or their name on the front, and then a lot of teams have a name on the back. Davis, Sanchez, whatever it may be. So there's this team on the front, but on the back, there's this individual component. And as you often see in athletics, a lot of times people are in it more for themselves, the name on the back, than they are the name on the front. That can happen in the church too. We forget the name on the front, who we're here to represent, what we're all doing here, and we start taking sides even in the church and criticizing different people in the church. Well, I like this pre person's preaching better. Well, this preaching. We start comparing them for some stupid reason. It's what can happen. It's what happened in Corinth. 
And we can all fall victim to this. I've done this. Paul makes a strong appeal to end the division. And again, as I said before, this this is one of the reasons they're considered immature. Look over at chapter 3, verse 1. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. So there's, there's more to teach you. There's more to talk to you about, but you don't teach algebra to a four-month-old. You don't. They're not ready for it. I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, because you weren't ready for it. And even now you're not ready, for you're still of the flesh. For where there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? Now, here, why were they immature? Here's the answer, verse 4. For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human, fleshly, worldly? That's how the world talks about their leaders. So, we can't go beyond to a greater maturity because this is what we've got to deal with. So, Paul sees this as a problem in the Corinthian church, and he makes a strong appeal for them to end their division. Now, I want to just be clear about this. This isn't one of those passages that you want to say, oh, okay, I know some people are like that, and let's go home and eat. We have to listen to the Word of God. We have to all do the hard work, myself included, you included. We have to all do the hard work. Um, Recently, I was in a store, and I was walking down an aisle, and I saw uh, a few people all wearing the same polo shirt standing next to a display with cell phones, and I knew what was coming. Uh, they were going to try to reel me in, and so I kind of you know, acted like I was looking at whatever was over there and kind of walking by, and then still, even though I wasn't making eye contact, the guy still talked to me, the nerve of that. <laughs> Sir, are you happy with your phone plan? And, you know, I did that type of thing in college, so I, I want to be gracious, and so as painful as it was, I turned and looked him in the eye and said, thank you, I, I'm not interested, I am happy with my phone plan, and, and then kept walking because, you know, if you pause, <laughs> they smell blood. So, my point is, not every appeal that someone makes do we have to take seriously. Jesus sent the Apostle Paul to teach the church, and he taught the Corinthians, and his words are preserved to benefit us. We have to consider this in our own life, okay? So, Paul makes a strong appeal to end division. I would encourage you to remember why we're all here. We want to see the gospel continue to build us up as we wait for the coming of Jesus. When he comes, he will save us finally. We will be united with him. No more pain, no more sorrow, no more temptation, no more sin. But when he comes, he also brings judgment. So that same gospel that's building us up, we want that gospel to go forth and rescue people from judgment because God is good and merciful and they need to know that. That's what we're doing here. And he uses different teachers at different times with different ways of speaking, different emphases to articulate the gospel and praise God that he uses so many people. That's what he does. 
So remember the team that you're on. Remember what is of most importance. So we see a strong appeal to end division. Secondly, we see a sad example of immature division. A sad example of immature division. So he appeals to them, stop doing this, and then he says, here's what you're doing. Verses 11 to 12. For it's been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. So Paul's kind of fleshing out how exactly they're being divided, and we see right here that they're being divided over their favorite preachers. Now, I want to make this very clear. This, they weren't dividing because of theological differences. They were dividing because of the way these preachers articulated the message, and there was a difference. And we can even get a clue as to more specifically what that difference was. We'll talk about it more in a little bit, but Apollos evidently had a golden tongue. I mean, the sermons just rolled off of his mouth. We know that from Acts 18. We'll see that. And we know that Paul wasn't impressive. And so we do know that that was part of the party spirit here. We're Apollos people because that was a big deal. How you articulated a thought and, and a truth and a proposition was a huge deal. It's huge now, but you wouldn't see that in presidential debates or speeches. It's just like gone away now. But oratory used to be a big deal, okay? Articulate speech used to be a big deal. Here, it was huge. So, Apollos had this articulation. Paul didn't. And so, you, you see here, oh, some were saying, I'm, I'm of Apollos. Listen to the guy. I, I can't listen to Paul. He makes me fall asleep. I can't track. I, I just can't do it. But God was working through Paul mightily. So we kind of see part of the division. And he says he, he's heard this message. Paul's not writing, obviously, from Corinth. He had messengers come to him from Chloe. I remember Al Mohler teaching on this passage, and he says, you know, all pastors know Chloe, and they know her people, the, these people that come and tell on the others and what's going on. And he says, it's been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you. And Chloe's people were right. Paul needed to know about this. There is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul. Now notice, this is Paul writing. And he thinks there's a problem with people who attach themselves to him to the exclusion of other teachers that God's given them. This isn't Paul saying, there's a problem when everyone says, I follow Apollos or Peter or Christ. You should follow me. Now, Paul's including himself in that. He doesn't want to be part of that party spirit. He doesn't want people following him and saying, Paul's our guy. We're not going to listen to Peter. What I mean is each one of you says, I follow Paul or I follow Apollos. Again, we know why they would have followed Apollos. He was mighty in speech. Or I follow Cephas. Some of the Jewish believers might have followed Peter because his ministry was more geared toward them. And they might have been suspect of the Apostle Paul. Well, Peter was with Jesus, physically with Jesus. So his words matter more than Paul's. He wasn't with Jesus. We know from Acts 9, Paul later saw Jesus as he was knocked off of his horse. But you could see why Peter would, or why people would discredit Paul 
for Peter. And notice that you could have a reason that you would trust one of these guys more than the other. Maybe Paul led you to Christ. That's a good thing. Maybe Peter spoke to your Jewish community in the synagogue and led a number of you to Christ. That's a good thing. You heard Apollos use the mouth he'd been given by God to articulate the gospel, and you were saved. That's a good thing. That's wonderful. But when you start to discredit other people whom God is using, now we've got a problem. That's the issue. And then there are some still that say, I follow Christ. And there's debate about what did this group think? And and my belief is that this was the group that said, I'm a follower of Jesus. I don't need Apollos' teaching, Paul's teaching, Peter's teaching. I follow Jesus. And that's not how Jesus disciples his people. He disciples us through one another. And Ephesians 4, through teachers. So, there are some errors here. There are some errors here. This is a sad example of their division. Now, I want to I identify that there's some other teaching in the New Testament. You might be asking, aren't we to value our Christian teachers and pastors? I mean, this seems like Paul's not valuing, you know, the Christian teachers or Apollos or Peter or even himself. No, no, no. We do value and respect our teachers. I'll give you a couple passages for this. 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 to 13. Listen to this. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. Value people that admonish you, is what the Bible says. And it's to esteem them very highly in love because of their work, because of what God's placed them to do. Hebrews 13, 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them because they're keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy, not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. So, there is a category in the New Testament for valuing your leaders. This isn't Paul saying, don't listen to any of us. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, God has been working through all of us. Now, another question that could come up. Is there anything wrong with being grateful for a spiritual leader or or even excited about a spiritual leader? Apollos led me to the Lord. He was the instrument God used. I'm so grateful for Apollos. Nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that. It's when we start viewing others in light of our favorite teacher and magnifying the weaknesses that they have that he doesn't. And forgetting that even our fellow teacher, our favorite teacher, has weaknesses. So the other group takes their teacher's strengths and then looks at our teacher's weakness, and it's just this party spirit that's ugly. The problems are when we assume that other teachers are somehow less used or uh, somehow the Holy Spirit's less at work in their ministry than others. And again, this isn't about a theological difference. These, these men all have the same theology of the cross, they're all preaching the gospel. We're not talking about, hey, just listen to some false teachers out there. They've got some good stuff too. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about people with sound doctrine, sound preachers of the gospel that we compare with one another. That's what we're talking about. So, I would encourage you to thank God for the teachers who He has used to benefit you. Thank God for that. Again, another place to see that is Hebrews 13. Remember your leaders. 
Remember those who spoke the word of God to you, imitate their faith. That, that, that's, a good, that's a good exhortation. Thank God for them. Remember them. So thank God for the teachers that have benefited you. Another pastoral thought for you, remember that those same teacher are, teachers are fallen. They're not perfect. Your grandma who taught you so much about the Bible who you just thought was wonderful was wonderful and not perfect. God's also given you pastors and friends to speak the word to you and, and sisters and brothers. Remember that all of us, all instruments are fallen, but we're redeemed. We're redeemed. You know, one of the ways that God sees to it that people don't attach themselves to, to people as much than they attach themselves to Him is He lets teachers die. He, he lets our favorite preachers and teachers and grandparents and uncles and Sunday school teachers, He lets them die. He brings them to heaven. Again, Hebrews 13, 7, remember your teachers, those who taught the Word of God to you. Imitate their faith. Very next verse, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. They go away. He always continues to build His church. So many people were helped by the ministry of Charles Spurgeon and John Wesley and, and John Calvin and things like that. So many of you have never read one of their sermons. They died. They were gone. They served their generation. And now you've got others that serve this generation. John Wesley didn't have a preaching ministry that lasted 500 years so that everyone thought, we've all got to follow John Wesley or whatever it might be. The Lord continues to build His church even when our favorite instructors go to heaven. And that's good. That's good. Remember that God builds His church through all of us, all of us, as we speak the Word to one another. And all of us are unworthy instruments, but He uses us. Some of the greatest lessons I've learned about the Christian life are not from, quote-unquote, pastors. They're from brothers and sisters who talk to me one-on-one. -on -one. God uses us. So, Paul gives a strong appeal to stop the divisions, a sad example of their immature division. And third and finally, a solid argument against division. He gives the other side. He gives what they're missing, a solid argument against division. Paul goes from appealing to them to stop and identifying how they're being immature to refuting what they're doing, to, to, to show them what they're missing in verses 13 to 17. He says, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beside that, I don't know whether I baptized anyone else. So, Paul says, is Christ divided? What he means by that is, okay, you've got the, 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 the Peter people, the Paul people, the Apollos people, and the Christ people. And he's saying, are you really saying that Christ is in the ministry of Apollos and he's not in the ministry of Peter? Are you really saying that? And by their actions, they were. And so he's showing the folly of that. In, in the words of Colossians 3, Colossians 3, you had believers who were kind of suspect of believers coming from different places than they came from. So there's really a barbarian and a Scythian who's a believer? I don't know about that. I know who those people are. I'm not quite so sure about that. And Colossians 3.11 says, there's neither slave nor free, barbarian, Scythian. 
Christ is all and in all. If you're a believer, Christ is in you. If you're a believer who's a pastor or a preacher or here in that day and age, an apostle preaching the gospel of Christ, the message of Christ, Christ was in you. And these people were acting as if Christ was in Apollos, but not Peter. Not in Paul's words. Is Christ divided? No, of course he's not. Was Paul crucified for you? Paul says of himself. I love it. Paul does not want people loyal to him. He wants them to listen to him as their shepherd. That'll come later in the book. But he doesn't want them loyal to him to the exclusion of hearing and being built up by others as well. He's literally saying, was I crucified for you? I wasn't. Your loyalty is not to me. It's to Christ. Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Back then, people would connect their spirituality to the one who baptized them. I was baptized by so-and-so. I was baptized by so-and-so. Listen, if you were baptized by your uncle who pastored your church in Alabama that was 15 people, that's as good as being baptized by, I don't know, take your pick, your favorite religious celebrity in the Jordan River. That's not more special to be in the Jordan River and that guy baptized me. Okay, he's a redeemed sinner. So is your uncle. Faithful pastor, faithful pastor. (laughs) We're baptized in the name of Christ. That's what we celebrate. He brought me into his life. That's amazing. It's extremely amazing. We're not baptized into the name of someone else. We're baptized in the name of Christ. And then Paul, you know, as he's making his argument, kind of goes off into the baptism discussion. I thank God that I baptized none of you. I'm glad that my main ministry isn't baptism because people might attach themselves to me all the more. I did baptize Crispus and Gaius so that no one may say that you're baptized in my name. So I don't want to baptize a bunch of people because I see this party spirit happening. And then I did baptize, as Paul's kind of thinking to himself, also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't know whether I baptized anyone else. And then verse 17 is really key, and it's kind of a transition point into next week's passage. For Christ didn't send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Right there, he didn't say the guy's name, but I think he's got Apollos in mind. Christ didn't send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And and right there, as people are reading this letter in Corinth, the, the, the Apollos people, Yes, Apollos. I mean, so good in articulating the gospel. Paul is kind of not fun to look at, not fun to listen to, not my cup of tea. Paul says, I wasn't here to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And they're like, yeah, I know. I know you're preaching the gospel. And not with words of eloquent wisdom. I don't need to preach with words of eloquent wisdom. As a matter of fact, there's a threat there. The more eloquent, there's a threat that the cross of Christ might be emptied of its power. Listeners might go, that guy's amazing, rather than what an amazing God to send his son for me. So we want the cross to have its power. And when we start highlighting how wonderful and outstanding our favorite preachers are to the exclusion of others, we can empty the cross of its power. The cross isn't anymore the right focus, the main focus. And that's not what we want to be doing. I just want you to see this. Turn to Acts 18. 
So I think this helps us understand our passage. Let's just tell the story of Apollos and just see where Paul's coming from here. Acts 18, verse 24. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man. See that word eloquent? Same word Paul used, right, in verse 17? He was an eloquent man, competent in the Scriptures. That's good. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord. Now, 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 just before I keep going, there's nothing wrong with Apollos. Okay, again, it's not that Apollos was liberal and so Paul's kind of disputing it. No, no, no. Faithful preacher of the gospel, okay? He was an eloquent man, competent in the Scriptures. Verse 25, he had, <coughs> he had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of the God more accurately. So he's learning now, Apollo says. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, now that's interesting, Achaia is the piece of land where Corinth is. So now we're learning that Apollos was in Ephesus. He was preaching. He needed some discipleship by Priscilla and Aquila. Now he's got that discipleship. He's ready to go. He's done with seminary. And he goes to Corinth, Achaia. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples. This is probably to the disciples in Corinth. So Christians in Ephesus wrote to the disciples of Jesus in Corinth or in that area, and encouraged the brothers to welcome him. You, they get this letter, open the letter. What does it say? What does it say? What did the Christians in Ephesus tell us? Hey, Apollos is coming. He's a mighty preacher of the Word of God. Listen to him. And so Apollos comes, and he preaches to those people in Corinth. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who, through grace, had believed. I love that, who through grace had believed. Who gets the credit here? God. God's the gracious one here, okay? He greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the Scriptures that Christ was Jesus. So evidently, he's refuting the Jews who do not think Jesus is the Messiah. And again, the people in Corinth can see his gifts on full display. There's nothing to criticize Apollos for here. God is the one that made him eloquent. God is the one that made him the preacher. He is God sought to it that two of God's followers, Jesus' followers, Priscilla and Aquila, would teach Apollos even more faithfully the way of God, speaking more about Jesus. And Apollos learns that and does something with that knowledge and goes and serves the church. And evidently, he's refuting error and showing the Jews Jesus is Messiah. And the people in Corinth are being blessed by this. That's wonderful. It's also wonderful when someone who's not eloquent and makes tense and was a former persecutor of the Jews and the Christian, I'm sorry, of the Christians, former persecutor of Christians, Paul comes and starts preaching his gospel, fumbling through words, mispronouncing things, whatever it might have been, as he's articulating the gospel, people are also being saved. That's a reason to give praise to God. So, in the ministry of Apollos, praise God for the ministry of Apollos. In the ministry of Paul, praise God for the ministry of Paul. That's the conclusion. Praise God. 
praise God, not I'm of Apollos. I'm not a big fan of Paul. Here's why. Let me read my blog post. Well, I don't like Apollos. Here's why. Read my blog post. Nope. Both used powerfully by our God. It's God's will. Why do you do it this way? I don't know. We do know why he works so mightily in Paul. Because when you see something not very special and you hear a special message, your focus is on the one who gives that message. The one who, who, who gave his son is what I mean. God the Father, Jesus the Son. Your focus is on the cross, not in the preacher. So here's a solid argument against a vision. Christ is not divided. He works in various leaders, various preachers of the gospel. Christ is the one with the power. Many of you know the name Dr. Ben Carson. In uh, 1987, he, along with a team of 70 surgeons, separated conjoined twins. Amazing feat. He, uh, in 2008, won the Presidential Medal of Freedom uh, for, for that feat. And I didn't see the, the awards ceremony, but, but my mind has just kind of imagined it. And I imagine at some point, Dr. Carson was introduced, his feats were, were, were stated, and then he was awarded the medal. And so it might have been like, everyone, I direct your attention to Dr. Ben Carson, and the cameras flash and the medal goes on. Imagine if the presenter would have said, ladies and gentlemen, I direct your attention to Dr. Ben Carson's scalpel. Look at this scalpel. I mean, this scalpel is the thing that solved this whole problem. This scalpel did this. This scalpel cut here. This scalpel did everything while Ben Carson kind of sits quietly with all eyes on the scalpel when he's the one that did it. Some Christians do that with other people, other preachers. And it can steal the focus off of the one who did come and die for sinners and who rose again and who's coming back to save his people and who loves his people. Jesus Christ isn't to share his glory. We cannot put the focus on other people to the detriment of Christ. The glory belongs to Christ. I just want to remind you of some truths that we hold to. God the Father, for some amazing and gracious reason, determined to save all of us from eternal damnation. God the Father determined to save us from His wrath. Friends, God the Father loves you and sent His Son to save you and I. God the Son came willingly, left the glories of heaven, according to Philippians 2, to suffer and die in our place, to experience all the pain you've experienced and even more, to suffer the wrath of God so that we would not have to. God the Son did that. R.C. Sproul didn't do that. John Piper, John MacArthur, Charles Spurgeon, John Calvin, Amy Carmichael, they didn't do that. Jesus the Son gave his life, shed his blood for us. Jesus rose displaying his power, the life that he has. He can come out of the grave when he wants to. God can raise him up when he wants to. 
God the Spirit was sent to work in the world today. If you're a Christian in this room, God the Holy Spirit acted upon your heart and gave you the gift of faith. See Ephesians 2 for that. God the Father determines that His Son would save, and the Father and the Son determine that the saving message of Him would continue through human history by using us to propagate that message, articulate that message. He uses us for some reason. So, when the, when the fountain of living water, Jesus Himself, when the fountain of living water makes Himself available through pipes, we don't give praise and glory to the pipe. We give it to the author and the fountain of living water. He's our focus. We praise the one who generally gave us grace, generously gave us grace and faith to believe. God has made us right with him. If you're not a Christian here today, I want you to hear the Christian church is trying to understand how to appreciate our leaders, but also not divide over our leaders. But the main message I would want you to hear is the leader of heaven and earth, the creator of heaven and earth has made a way for you and I who are sinners and who have not obeyed Him, He's made a way for us to be right with Him through His Son's death and resurrection. I hope that you would cling to Jesus who makes you right with God. Cling to Him by faith. Realize you do not have to audition for heaven. You don't have to be a certain level of morality to be in heaven. You simply need to say, I need you to forgive me and give me your righteousness. And He saves. All who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved, the Bible says. So I'd encourage you to do that. Put your trust in Him. Pastor Robert Murray McShane, you know, one of my favorite um, heroes, not to the detriment of others who've been used by God, (laughs) but someone who I can appreciate, um, went away on a missions trip to to Israel for a lengthy bit of time. I think it might have been six months to a year. He went away, and while he was away, revival happened in his church, The, the, the interim preacher led a number of people to the Lord, and McShane was so pleased by that, and he said this, I have no desire but the salvation of my people by whatever instrument. That's a great statement, and I know I've read his other quote to you before, and I'm going to read it again because I think it fits here. He says this, a minister will make a poor savior in the day of wrath. It is not knowing a minister or loving one or hearing one or having a name to live that will save, you need to have your hand on the head of the Lamb, Jesus Christ, for yourself. Let's pray together. Father, I'd ask that our allegiance wouldn't just be directly to your Son alone, but that our allegiance would be known to be directly in your Son. We would be known for being His people. We'd be enamored for what He does. So give us wisdom here, Father. We are thankful for our leaders, people who have led us to You, and You tell us to be thankful for them, to remember that. So we remember them because of what You've done in their lives. And to the degree that that thankfulness could tempt us toward dividing with other brothers and sisters in this church, please eradicate that keep us remembering the team and the mission that we're on. Father, thank you for your forgiveness. 
Thank you that if we've violated this passage in any way, you promise to forgive. We stand complete in you, sustained in you, because you're faithful. We pray this all in the name of Christ. Amen.